All right, well, let's crack into it. Genesis chapter 26. And uh, if you're familiar with chapter 26, it, it's a passage which is dedicated to Isaac. And up to this point, Isaac, we haven't really got a lot about him. We've kind of transitioned away from Abraham, away from Sarah, and now we're on the verge of transitioning away from Isaac. And it, it kind of blew my mind. We, we had, what, several weeks devoted to the couple of Abraham and Sarah, and now within the span of two weeks, we're transitioning away from Isaac. He doesn't get much attention. And unfortunately, even in this passage, we, he gets the unfortunate situation where what he does, this passage, which is devoted to Isaac, has a very Abraham-like feel to it. And you'll see in a few moments uh, exactly what I'm saying. Uh, and I have this quote here, and it's from Mark Twain. And uh, what Mark Twain says, he says, History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And as we read this passage, you're going to notice, hey, I've read this before at some point. And yeah, you have. I mean, the exact events which Isaac is going to go through is a replaying of the two most significant mistakes of Abraham's life. And the reason I want to share this with you is because sometimes when we reread something for the second or third time, it's easy to gloss over it, right? I've been there, done that. Yes, I've already drawn some points out. But let's not do that here with Isaac because the passage is deep and the author is trying to help teach us something here uh, very deliberately. I think that's why there's so many parallels, okay? So let's crack into it, uh, looking at Genesis 26, verse 1 to 3. I'm going to find it in the Bible first. Genesis is at the beginning, okay. <laughs> Genesis 26, and uh, starting in verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in this land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed be, uh, sorry will be blessed because Abraham obeyed and did everything I required him of him keeping my commands my decrees and my instructions so Isaac stayed in Gerar when the men of that place asked him about his wife he said she is my sister because he was afraid to say she is my wife he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful now, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, because I, I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is, this, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold. Sorry, I skipped too far. Yeah. Because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped 
stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said that the water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. For I am with you, I will bless you, and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac, re- Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Azuath, his personal advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you, so we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you would do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other, then Isaac sent them on their way and they went away peacefully that day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug they said we found water he called it Sheba and to this day he, the, town, the name of the town has been Beersheba Whew, we'll stop there not quite the end of the chapter but definitely a majority of it uh, let's have a quick prayer then we can look at a few different points uh, that we can learn from this passage uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, yeah, thanks so much that we have the uh, example of the patriarchs and, and their wives in the Bible, Lord, uh, that we can learn from their example. Even though that example isn't always positive, Lord, it's designed to teach us a lot about ourselves and a lot about you as well. And I thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather here and be able to dive into your word and that as we do so, your spirit can move our hearts and that we take your word, Lord, and we apply it to our lives in a meaningful way. I love you, Lord, and I thank you so much for what you've done for us in dying on the cross. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, well, I, the title of the sermon is Learning to Live in the Land. Because I, I guess a general idea, which I want to really portray from this passage, is this is Isaac figuring out who he is. He gets one chapter, that's all he gets. And this is the chapter where Isaac really figures out who I'm going to be. And even more importantly, he figures out who does God want me to be? Because living in the land means you have to have a certain type of character. And so I have three points here. Whoops. And they're not super extensive, um, but interesting. And the first I have here is that he's learning how to be a blessing and not a burden. He's learning exactly what it means to be partners of the promise. And as you may recollect, even, even as God was speaking to, to Isaac, the word blessing does pop up. It is important that he is a blessing. And secondly, our idea is that we need to dig up the dirt. It's a little bit odd, right? We go from the scene of him kind of interacting with the Philistines, Abimelech, and, and you know, a, a big deception, and then suddenly he's out in the desert digging wells. We're like, gosh, what a transition. 
But what is the passage trying to teach us? But what I'm going to contend here is that the notion of digging is not meant to be purely literal. He's digging for something specifically. And it's not literal, it's symbolic. And I will explore that in, in great detail. And finally, we're going to learn what it means to be grounded in God's grace. Because everything here is framed by what God is doing for Isaac. Now, is Isaac an admirable character in this passage? Most of it, no. But we see God is still working through him, even despite Isaac's flaws. Which is, I mean, spoiler alert, that's great news for us, okay? Because I don't know about you guys, but I can be flawed on some occasions. I can have some challenges. And knowing that God is going to work through me despite that is reassuring for me. So let's look at this first point I have here. Uh, actually, even before we look at the point, I just want to read a passage, sorry. Uh, it's from 1 Timothy. I don't normally like to open uh, a sermon with a, a random passage, but I feel like it encapsulates exactly what this general chapter is about. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. And in it, it says, In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse them, oh, sorry, cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And this is the point of all three points. Isaac is having his character refined. He's changing. And what Abraham gets over the course of 15 or so chapters, Isaac has it happen in a single chapter. It's, it's really interesting to watch. So let's look at the first point here I have, and that's Isaac learning to be a blessing and not a burden, essentially. And as you can see, in verse 2 to 5 of the chapter, it opens up with very specific and familiar language. And consider what's actually been said here. Verse 2, he talks about, hey, Isaac, stay, or God says, Isaac, stay away from Egypt. Exactly what he says to Abraham, right? And the same way he, re, he kind of reiterates the promise, what he originally made to Abraham. In verse 3, he says, I will give you the land of Canaan. In verse 4, he says, I, the promise is for your descendants, and they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And finally, in verse 4 again, he says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. If you're familiar with the promise, you're like, oh, dude, this is an exact replica. God is giving Isaac this same promise that he gave Abraham. And I want, I want to go back, all the way back to where Abraham first got the promise, because we're going to notice a, a very interesting point. So back in Genesis 12, where he first got the promise, it says, or God says to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land, and I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Blessing. <laughs> Get this repeated idea, blessing, bless. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing. In the same way, Isaac, your identity, who I want you to be, this is from God's perspective, who I want you to be, Isaac, is a blessing to the nations. That is your purpose. Now, how does, Abraham, sorry, how does Isaac go about that? It kind of fails, epically, right? I mean, look, think about the Philistines' impression of Isaac. I mean, in verse 12, it says... Um, it says, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold. Oh, sorry. That's, that's a little bit too far. Sorry. Gosh. In verse 10, sorry. In verse 10, it says, Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? 
one of the men might have might, one of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us so there's a bit of a contrast here God says I want you to be a blessing and what actually he ends up doing is kind of being a curse it's kind of being a burden to these people and I, I, I find it so ironic that God would say, I want you to be like your father Abraham. I want you to be righteous. I want you to be obedient and have faith. And then he goes and immediately is, ironically, just like his father Abraham, but in the complete wrong way. It's, it's a cruel irony. And what I find so interesting is God's, God's promise involves blessings being given to these people, but also them being blessings to other people. And we see God, he delivers. Well, let me look at verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. I had such a hard time with this section, right? I mean, Isaac has just been an absolute little stupid person. I mean, he, he's done the exact wrong thing. And then the next verse, he gets blessed. Like, why the heck is he being blessed? It's so obvious because God said he would. God made the promise, I'm going to bless you, and God comes through on the promise. But Isaac is not doing it. The, pro- the blessing stops with Isaac. I think there's even a point for us here as Christians who have partaken in a new promise, a new blessing. Does the blessing stop with us? Or do we pass it on? Are we, are we a light to all nations? Or, or do we just take all the fruit, all the blessings that God has to offer and restrict it to ourselves. Because that's not the nature of being a partner with God. And uh, I, I guess I just want to touch briefly as well. And the, the, reason why, the reason why he's unable to fulfill that identity, of course, is because of fear. And I, I believe Jack and, and Sam in the past have spoken about the idea of faith versus fear. We see it pop up again. But I mean, I mean, look at this from God's perspective. He's literally just appeared to Isaac at the beginning of this chapter, giving him this great promise direct from himself. You will flourish, okay? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then the next verse, we have Isaac being like, oh gosh, I'm worried I'm going to die now. And what's so cool about this passage is a lot of people suspect that it's not in chronological order. Isaac does not have any children. And you've got to ask, Isaac, if God just promised you descendants as numerous as the stars and you don't have children, you probably are going to survive. Your life will probably continue and persevere here. But he's so locked into fear that even the words directly from God has no impact. He's so locked into fear and and that fear obviously leads to sin as well. And I mean, this passage is a, is, a, is a great insight into the nature of what sin actually is. I mean, sin is so destructive, first of all, to our purpose that God has given us. I mean, Isaac is not living out his purpose. He's not being a blessing. He is just a curse to all the people he encounters. But secondly, my gosh, it, it really erodes our relationships. And we want to understand the nature of sin. So often we can be deceived in thinking, my sin only impacts me. I will bear the consequences of my sin. And what we see in this passage is that Isaac's sin is pretty far-reaching. I mean, it affects an entire nation, the Philistines. And what I find so interesting about this is that Abimelech, who is a pagan king, has super limited understanding of who God is, 
comes up to Isaac, the successor of Abraham, one of the patriarchs, and he rebukes him, saying, dude, you are morally dubious right now. Like, what are you, what are you doing? That's coming from a pagan king who has limited understanding of who God is. And Abimelech and the Philistines push him away. They want nothing to do with Isaac. Get away from us. It's, 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 it's crazy that his sin would have that effect on the world. Because we, even us as Christians, we are called to be a light to the world. But do people look into our lives and think, gosh, that person does not have it together? That person has some real attitude problems. That person has, I mean, the way they speak, the way they act. I mean, even the pagan world, even the secular world, how do they, how do they view us? And how does our sin impact them? And then I even think about Rebecca. Can you imagine being Rebecca in that situation? Your husband literally says, hey, Loki, I want our marriage to be a secret for a while, okay? You're, you're my sister now, like publicly. I think even at the back where we were kind of singing, Pam tried to hold my hands, and I was, uh, I was kind of looking at my sermon. I was like, oh, one second. And I looked over, and she was like, like <laughs> that, that's because I rejected the handhold, okay? But imagine what that does to a wife who, 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 whose husband says, you know what, you're secret from now on. I don't, want, I don't want the world to know about your existence. I mean, you think about the psychological or emotional harm that would have had on Rebecca. Because, I mean, we need to think about that because I, I would wager Isaac probably did not. Isaac probably did not think about Rebecca when he made his decision to lie to Abimelech. I mean, for, for him, it was just about self. And finally, the, the, the relationship which is, is, is most interesting, the one which is most damaged in some sense by sin, is the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. I mean, it's no coincidence that Isaac is literally following in his father's footsteps, is literally doing a play-by-play of his greatest mistake. And I can't help but wonder, I mean, if Abraham was at some point in Isaac's life, maybe when he was a child, if Abraham was like, hey, dude, sit down, let's have a chat about my greatest mistake, and humbly broke it down, this is what happened, this is where I failed as a father and as a husband, I mean, would Isaac have made this mistake? Would Isaac have done the same thing? And what I suspect, it, it probably never happened. It probably never happened. And that the sin has been passed down from Abraham to Isaac because Abraham's character has now rubbed off onto Isaac. And there's such a, a, a kind of, I guess, powerful point here if you are parents. I mean, if you are parents, who you are today will determine the course of your child's life, who they become as an adult. I mean, I mean where, do, where do you want your children head, heading? Do you want them making the same foolish mistakes you did? Sam and I were studying with a, a young teen recently, and we gave him the challenge of going back, speaking to his parents with the sole purpose of learning about what they did and how they kind of approached becoming a Christian. I think the reason why we get that point is because sometimes teens can look at their parents and be like, oh, they're a Christian, and that's just who they always have been. I, they obey God because they obey God. They believe just because they believe. And it's so powerful, and especially if you're, I mean, if you're a parent, I encourage you, sit down with your, with your child and share the details which are not so desirable to share. Share with them the hard mistakes, the truths 
of your life so they can actually see for a moment where you've come from. I think that is a powerful, powerful point in there for, for, for parents. And uh, yeah, and so ultimately, if, if, if we want to grow, if we want to become the type of people that can partner with the promise, we have to be, of course, willing to kind of embrace a new way of living. And the easiest way I can think of how that transformation can take place and how that transformation took place for Isaac is that he was digging a lot of holes, okay? And that's my second point here, is that I mean, if we want to be transformed, if we want to fulfill who we need to be as, as, as partners with God, we've got to dig up the dirt. My gosh. I mean, if you see, see up there, um, if you guys are cultured, you'll recognize that movie. And who, recognizes that, who recognizes that movie? Classic, right? Holes, Disney. Uh, that was my childhood, one of my favorite movies. Uh, I believe it was around like 2003, I have. And it, it's an interesting movie because it's obviously about digging holes. That's part of it. But as the movie progresses, what we see, as they dig more and more holes, more and more of the past is literally brought out into the open. It's interesting. As the character digs holes, uh, the main character's name is Stanley, he learns more about where he came from. And we learn more about where everyone came from. And the whole movie is this, this symbolism of, yes, they're physically digging, but there is a deeper digging happening. He's unearthing the past bit by bit. And if, if we want to understand what's happening here in this passage, it's kind of like the movie Holes. Yes, Isaac is physically digging. Yes, he's building wells, and that's important for him becoming kind of centered within the, uh, within the land. But, I mean, there's so many consequences, uh, I guess, for him actually digging these holes. And in verse 18, it says, Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father, Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Now, why does, Ab- so why does Isaac need to go and redig wells? In the passage, it talks about because the Philistines envied him. Yeah? But I mean, it goes a little bit deeper. And when, it, when you really think about it, the Philistines envied him because he's having tremendous success and he's being morally dubious at the same time. Have you ever seen that in somebody? It's, it's hard to see someone you're like, oh, I don't really appreciate, also experience a lot of success. And the Philistines obviously have certain sin in their life that they've got to confront. But the fact that these wells are being caved in is because of Isaac's sin. So every time he needs to go and redig another well, it is a reminder that well, that's kind of because of you. You did that, Isaac. That's your mistake. And he is constantly being forced to look back into the past and confront his own sin. But he's not just confronting his own sin, right? It's not just his well which has been undug. Right? Consider the fact that it's also Abraham's well. And there's a lot of significance in that. And the significant, significant, significance comes from the fact that it's all, it also surrounds the naming aspect. The naming aspect matters. And there's a, there's a section there where Isaac goes on a bit of a naming spree. He names a well Esek which means disputes. He names Sitna, another well, Sitna, which means opposition. He names another one, Rehoboth, which means room. God has made room. And so what the passage is trying to help us is that the naming of these wells 
is meant to remind people of the events that surrounded them. And so when, when Isaac goes and he re, re-digs the wells of Abraham and he gives them the same names, the same names that Abraham originally gave them, I mean, what effect does that have on Isaac? I mean, as he names as well, he's like, oh, yes, this is what my dad was doing last time he came here. This is what my dad was doing. And it wasn't so great. Abraham had a morally dubious past. He had some real challenges. And Isaac, by naming these wells again and again, he's in some sense unearthing the dark past of his family, the dark past of his father. And I feel like it's significant because it's challenging. No one likes to go and dig up sin. We don't like to dig up our own sin. And we certainly do not like to dig up the sin of other people that have somehow hurt us. We like to keep it buried underneath the surface. We've got to understand that if we want to spiritually grow, we have to dig first. We have to be willing, like Isaac is doing here, to confront even the dirtiest parts of our lives and the lives of our family. I mean, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe someone comes to your mind immediately. Maybe it's one of your sins. Maybe it's a way you've been hurt in the past. And it's, for a long time, it's been, let me just leave it underneath the ground. Let me just shift it to the side because it's too painful for you to look at. But gosh, if we want to become, if we want to take on the identity of, of which God desires us as he desires for Isaac, we have to be willing to dig a little bit deeper. Amen? And the cool thing is, after he does this, after he actually, Isaac, I mean, after Isaac actually does go digging all those tough wells, he eventually reaches a prosperous well, a well he enjoys digging. And he calls it Rehoboth. It's in verse 22. And it says, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. I think the author is doing something very specific here. He leaves the final well after all the challenging wells, and this well, Rehoboth, after all the disappointment of the previous wells, after all the pain of the previous wells, is the one which will allow him to flourish. And even when, when, when he says flourish, a few things come to my mind. Firstly, it's connected to the idea of bearing fruits. And what's the big promise for, for Isaac? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Bearing fruit, growth. I mean, in some sense, him finding this well is, is God's way of saying, you, you can now begin to connect better to the promise. You can now be a partner of the promise again because you've gone through that hard digging. And secondly, I mean, it's a hopeful statement, right? That's a statement of hope. It's one for the future. We will now flourish. I mean, so often when we have sin in our lives, which is bogging us down, when our marriage or our relationships, our friendships, our relationships with our children are tarnished by something of the past, it feels like there's no hope. It feels like there's no way to move forward. But what we see here is that because he's willing to dig deeper, he eventually finds a well which gives hope again, if that makes sense. <laughs> Hopefully it does. 
And yeah, I just want to share this, uh, this passage before we get into our final point. We're almost done. It's in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 11. It's a passage which I often, often read with some of the guys as well. And it says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. I love that ending part. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So often we think, oh, if I bury it long enough, maybe it'll just go away. That's going to stay in darkness. It's going to stay in darkness. And we need to bring light into the dark areas of our lives so they can be illuminated, so we can be healed. But it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do that. But fortunately, we get in this passage a way to go about it a way in which we can get the the, the motivation and and character to actually begin digging in the hard spots. And if we want to be able to dig properly, we have to be grounded in God's grace. We've got to be grounded in God's grace. And what I find really cool about this passage is that in verse 25, we see Isaac do a complete 180 as to who he is. But think about how he starts off the chapter. He's fearful, not really listening to the promise of God, not really kind of living a righteous life. But in verse 25, he has a light bulb moment. And it says, Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. So there's four components to that, that verse. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. He pitches his tent and he digs another well. I think all four of these things is trying to communicate a central point is that, that Isaac is beginning to rely on God. I, I, when I first read this passage, I found that that verse calls on the name of the Lord very interesting because I grew up in a Pentecostal background. I would hear that often to justify a sinner's prayer. You know, if you want to be saved, call on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, it's in, I think it's in Acts 2 as well. It's the idea of in some sense, it's come to God. But it's so much deeper than that. In this passage, we see Isaac again and again naming wells. And when he names the well, what he's communicating is, that is my well. I, that well is part of my ownership. And so when he calls on the name of the Lord, what he's really communicating is that God's name is over me now. I fall under his ownership under his authority. And it's a total 180 because no longer is Isaac trying to pioneer his own course. In some sense, Isaac trying to save his own life and he's done that previously through deception. Now he's saying, I'm going to relinquish control to you, God. And we see, we see it has some, some major impacts on the world around him. It, it, it does a few things. Firstly, it creates peace. And what we're almost done here. Just on the verge, it creates peace in his relationships. We have Isaac in verse 27, when he he encounters Abimelech, he says, Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? What I find kind of humorous about this passage is, about this verse, is that not, not, not much further down, Abimelech says, Well, we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. Now you're blessed by God. Isaac's perspective, you were hostile. Abimelech's perspective, dude, we're chill. We're good, man. What's the homie? No. These are total different impressions of how the events unfolded. And what I find remarkable about that is, isn't that most of our conflict? 
I mean, I've been married for only six months. So much of our conflict is because I see life one way, events one way, and Pam says, mm mm I see a completely different way. And conflict is confusing. It's, it's fuzzy by its nature. And what I love about this is that Isaac does not get into this tangent about, I'm right, you're wrong. No, you were really hostile. I'm the correct one in this situation. He doesn't say that at all. He seeks peace immediately. He brings them in, have a meal. There's no, there's no real need for discussion unless iron this out. He just desires peace. Don't get me wrong, there is a, a time and place to iron out fights and to know what the truth is. But so often we think, I'm going to pursue truth, when really all we're pursuing is more conflict. And it's truth motivated by pride out of desire to be right. And that's not how Isaac approaches it. And the reason why he doesn't approach it that way the reason he doesn't approach it that way, I feel anyway, is because of the later events of him calling on the name of the Lord. There's this cool passage here. Oops. There's this cool passage here uh, in James 4. And James is kind of giving the antidote to us quarreling and having fights. And it says in James 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your life to the morning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The antidote to our conflict is growing closer to God. The antidote is humility. And when we're focused on self, as Isaac was at the beginning of this, of this passage, conflict will gravitate towards you. But when Isaac has that light bulb moment and he says, you know what, I'm going to realign myself with God, we see peace begin to filter into his relationships again. So that's the first thing, what, what being greater than God does for us. And the second thing I have here uh, is that it relieves our fears. It says in verse 24, when, when, when God appears to Isaac, he says, he says a very interesting thing. He says, do not be afraid. Now, why was Isaac in such incredible trouble earlier when he went into uh, Gerar? Because he was afraid, yeah? And God is saying, well, no, no, you're living a new life now. You're living differently. Do not be afraid. I had to really think, I mean, what, why might God be, oh, sorry, why might Isaac be afraid in this moment, besides the fact you know the God of creation is in front of you or appearing to you. And I, I, I guess the conclusion I came to is that God is appearing to him immediately after his biggest failure. Immediately after he's experienced incredible guilt, shame, foolishness. Immediately after he has absolutely rejected the word of God. And in that moment, I'm sure he felt afraid. I messed up. I did wrong. Ah, gosh, now God's coming to me? I, I would be afraid as well. That's my nature as well. I'd be like, oh, gosh, I, I'm in trouble. But that's, that's not God's approach. And what God says here, he says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. The antidote to fear in this situation, by God's definition, is I am with you. God is the antidote to fear. And the way he does this is remarkable because it's all surrounding grace. I mean, consider the fact that before Isaac messes up, God appears to him and he gives him a rundown of the covenants. 
And then after Isaac messes, out, messes up, God appears and he gives him a rundown of the covenant. What I, what I think this is trying to communicate to us is it doesn't matter, Isaac, that you messed up. I am still going to be your partner. You've turned back to me. The promise has not changed. My grace is greater than your failure. I'm still here. You are, we're still going to work together. And that's such an important lesson for us because when we mess up, when we have failures, when we have dark things in our past that we don't want to confront, we can first immediately think, oh, that means guilt, that means shame. Let me just keep it buried. But that's not the type of God we have. We have a God that, you know, when we, when we dig up the hard things, He shows grace. And He loves us. And so often we don't, we don't dig up the things that we need to dig up. We don't confront the sins that we need to confront because we know it's going to be painful. And I have this quote here from Jordan Peterson. And what he says, he says, conflict delayed is conflict multiplied. Now you may think what you've left in the past is just there, but my gosh, it is multiplying in the darkness. You don't deal with it now, it will come back. You know what? It may not explicitly come back in your lifetime, but what we learn from this is that it may even come back on your children. It may be intergenerational. And that's a scary idea, and it should motivate us to confront our, dark, our darkest fears. And, of course, we have the ultimate example of grace. And this is just the, the finishing, uh, I guess, the finishing slide here, and it's a quote. I just want to, really, I want to read it really quickly. It says, uh, it's from Erwin Lutzer. It says, in Christ, we can move out of our past into a meaningful presence and a breathtaking future. Now, why is that? It's because Christ went up on the cross and he died for every sin that you have. It's all covered. Even the sins that you don't want to bring out, it's been covered. And we got to take that reality and we have to shape our future with that, that paradigm, with that perspective. Amen? And so my closing charge here is if you have something... Which, which you're holding on to, which you've left buried. It may be something that someone else has done to you. It may be something that you've done. Bring it out. Bring it into light. Let it be illuminated and let your life be changed. God has a promise for you. He has a purpose. But in order for him to work with, with you, you have to partner up and dig. Amen? Let's have a quick prayer. Then we can have a, a final song. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um. Yeah, I thank you so much that, that you would die on the cross for us to relieve us from all the shame and guilt and, I guess, fears of our life. That you've paved a new way, Lord, one which is of humility, which can, can radically transform not just ourselves, Lord, but each relationship that we have. I pray, Lord, when we look at Isaac, we can follow his example, that we can call on your name and we can submit ourselves to you and relinquish control of our lives. And Lord, I pray that if, if we have things in our lives that, which we, we maybe feel convicted about today, that we can actually dig them up. We can dig them up, Lord, and we can surrender them completely to you. Knowing that you are God of grace, of mercy, of love, and you want to use us. And you've given us a far larger, purp larger purpose than we could really fully understand. I love you for that, Lord. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.